The sky is falling. Stocks are down in 2014. But it's okay, because you're in the right place, folks. Because this is where the money is. Welcome to the show. I'm Matt Kopenheffer. This right here is David Hansen. David, the last presidential election was in 2012. The next one isn't until 2016. But already, it looks like somebody is trying to take Chris Christie out of the running. Who is your replacement for Chris Christie for president in 2016? I think I've already said this before. It's Ben Bernanke. He's leaving office now. He's timing it perfectly. The economy is going to be rolling in 2016. He's going to say, this is because of me. Election. It doesn't get more exciting than Ben Bernanke. It does not. He's a very exciting Electrifying. And and then there's the beard. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't get any better. Has there ever been... There hasn't been a president recently with a beard. Back in the old days, yes. But Back in the olden days. With those cool beards. but The walrus the yeah. walrus stash. I think we need more presidents with walrus we, we stashes. Do. All right, getting on to the headlines. First headline of the day comes from the Wall Street Journal. Quiet start puts U.S. investors in a fix. David, stocks are down so far in 2014. This is, uh, this is terrible. This is really bad news. From, the article says the uncharacteristic dip is leaving investors in a tough position. Selling now could protect them from further declines, but could also mean they would miss out on the gains that most experts are still forecasting for the rest of the year. What are you doing? How are you, how are you even smi- you're smiling right now? You said this the sky is- was falling, but... It is. Okay, the, the do I author... Do press that scream again? You do not. Please, please do not. Uh, the author says that stocks are down point. Eight percent so far exactly. in 2014, and yes, annualize okay. that out. Okay, and, and annualize <laughs> not very good, but um, he says usually at the beginning of the year stocks have a good start. I'm not going to put too much weight into this arbitrary point. Beginning of the year stocks trade higher in the first couple weeks. I don't care about that. I went back and looked at the S and P since 1970. 31 percent of all trailing seven day returns have been worse than 0.8 percent. So we're not deviating from the norm here. This is a seven day period. We're down about 1%. That's happened about 30% of the time over a seven-day period. So this is, to me, this is a little silly. So, wait, you're saying the sky is not falling? Not to me. My sky is, is holding up there. All right. I guess we've got to move on to the second headline. All right. Going over to the FT. Banks win Basel concessions on debt rules. Uh, now, we saw some, some regulators, some European regulators over in Basel, I guess giving the banks... European banks, a little bit of a break when it comes to leverage ratios in terms of how much capital they have to have on their balance sheet. What this means for U.S. banks, it's not totally clear. So we have the Basel Accords that aren't necessarily strictly enforced. They're more of guidelines in terms of what individual regulators need to do. Uh, So we could see requirements being more for U.S. banks than they are for their European counterparts. Um, The numbers that have been thrown around for the U.S. banks around 5% leverage ratio. On the last conference call, Bank of America said, hey, we're already above 5%. Citigroup said the same thing. And these rules wouldn't go into effect until 2018. So I don't see too big of a concern here. Is, do you see this as a long-term kind of risk to, to bank investors? I see it as a risk if the, if the want or the desire for super safe banks goes so far out mm-hmm. uh, that banks have to hold so much capital that they're not able to earn adequate returns for their investors. That is a concern. But I think what we're seeing here is kind of that, that push-pull as we try to figure out what regulations are going to work the best because we want safe banks. We don't want a repeat of 2008. Um, but at the same time, we need banks to be able to lend 
and we need banks to be able to attract capital uh, based on the fact that they're earning uh, attractive returns. I will say, looking over here to the U.S., Thomas Honig over at the, the FDIC isn't really feeling it. Mm-hmm. He wants a 10% leverage ratio for U.S. banks, um, and he's in a position to do a decent amount of mm-hmm. pushing for, for such, a high, uh, such a high leverage ratio. Yeah, I, he says there's limited, I, I think he said there was no downside to having bigger ratios there. A, a 10% uh, leverage ratio would be pretty extreme, but I, I would be cautious of saying, okay, we're doing 10% and nothing bad can happen. Because when that starts to happen, that's when banks will give riskier loans. If you're just doing a straight 10%, mm-hmm. which is just total assets over equity, it gets a little gets a little hairy in terms of what are those assets. So even though it might look really healthy at 10%, it may not be. So it's like, I it's like the whole seatbelt thing. People mm-hmm. start driving uh, more uh, more recklessly when right. they're wearing a seatbelt because they think that they're safer. Uh, I will point out, I, I didn't bring up the numbers here with me, but I had done that analysis a while back that just looked simply at uh, shareholders' equity book value as a percentage of total assets for U.S. banks. Mm-hmm. And if we look at the banks that did the worst during the, the credit crisis, you've got banks like Citigroup and Bank of America who had a very low ratio when it comes to that versus Wells Fargo, J.P. Morgan, who had higher ratios. So, I mean, th- there is something to be said for having safer, uh, higher, higher ratios at the banks there. Uh, and and it's, I should also point out that J.P. Morgan and Wells Fargo were able to uh, deliver attractive returns for their investors despite having that. Mm-hmm. So even if we get higher, uh, higher regulatory rules, there's still the opportunity for banks to earn. Just don't want them going too far out there. Right. All right, number three. Uh, this is from Bloomberg. We've got Goldman, 10% return tied to blank fine pay, too low for investors. This is like a classic Bloomberg, Bloomberg headline. headline. <laughs> <laughs> you got to like parse this. So, so what, the, what the article was about is, is essentially the 10% return on equity uh, level. Right. That's where Goldman has set the executive pay for, uh, that's the hurdle for executives to get their bonuses. And essentially arguing that, number one, investors want Goldman to set a, a goal for return on equity. And number two, they want it to be higher than 10%. Do you think either one or two should be true? Should they set one? Maybe. I mean, I, I'll leave it in their hands. I, I think they have a better understanding of what they need to do than I do. Um, but 10%, they said, or blank for said, that's not entirely impressive. That's, that shouldn't be our hurdle long term. They're not going to come out and say, we want to get to 20%. But I think, it, I think they all realize it should be higher than 10%. Um, so the way Goldman's trading right now, I think it's the, the multiple is trading as if these are going to be their returns forever, between 10 15%. I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think that's a pretty conservative bet right now. I think Goldman, given their history, I think they could navigate very, various environments to get that return on equity back up. And you look at their capital. We just talked about capital. That's moved up a lot. They have room to, to increase leverage there to a healthy level, hopefully. So I see this as, yes, they're not doing great now. We're going to see the results later this week. But over time, I still think Goldman can produce good results. Here's the quote that I liked from the article. Most investors prefer clarity over uncertainty. Yeah, they mm-hmm. do. But you know what? For those investors that want certainty, Goldman Sachs is just not – I don't think that's the investment for them. This is not the most transparent uh, investment uh, company or the company you can invest in. And as far as – well, let me first address what you said. So 10% return on equity right now, trading at a 
two times tangible mm -hmm. book value ratio, that's pretty attractive. So for investors who are saying 10% isn't enough for us, at the current valuation, buying it at the current valuation, I think that's pretty darn attractive. And then you have any, any additional upside if Goldman gets over that hurdle that they're setting for their executives. The other thing is that I don't know as a Goldman investor myself that, that I want necessarily to, for there to be a hard set goal for return on equity. I want Goldman to be able to take advantage of favorable environments when mm -hmm. those exist. But I want them to pull back when it's not a favorable environment. And when you set goals of something like return on equity, um, that can set up the situation where they're going to stomp the gas pedal too hard when they shouldn't be, mm -hmm. just because they want to hit that return on equity. And that's not what I want to see from them. This isn't, you know, if, if you think about a, a, secular, a secular growth company like an Amazon or a Google that you want to see grow year after year, that's not what you want from a Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs is going to be a little bit up and down year over year. You maybe want to see them grow if you connect the dots from today maybe to 20 years down the line. But you're not going to see this smooth growth right. trajectory. It's going to be a little jagged. And on the valuation, 1.2 times tangible book, it's almost the same as Bank of America. And when I look at the earnings potential from a return on equity perspective, I have a lot more confidence that Goldman Sachs is going to have double-digit returns on equity over time than Bank of America. Bank of America is certainly getting there, but for those to trade at the same valuation, I I think that's wrong. So given today both of those, same valuation, you're going Goldman Sachs easily over Bank yes. of America. Yes, yes. All right. Speaking of picking stocks, on Friday we had, uh, we had an interview with Brendan Matthews on the show, and I encourage anybody who didn't catch that interview to go back to Friday's show and check that out. It was really good. Uh, I talked to him a little bit about the, the where the money is stock draft, the inaugural stock draft. We did this back in it was August, August right? So August, we did this stock draft, and I revisited some of the stocks that he picked uh, and, and, how, and how, how the outlook is for them now. So I figured we could go back and, and revisit some of our picks as well. So you want to start, off with, uh, start us off with one of your stellar stock draft picks? Well, we have the standings here. We'll put those, <laughs> we can throw those up on the screen before I start so I have no credibility. I am dead last there at negative... 19.55, Brendan is first of 22, Matt is third, and Billy is second. So Neither I am losing. Shooting the lights out. Um, and I, the reason I'm losing by so much is everyone else has one that's doing pretty well. All of mine are pretty much equal with the market, then I have a pretty big loser in Annalie. But I, I've said it a million times before. I still feel that's good. a lot of times to say. Million, I still feel good about J.P. Morgan. We, we did this five months ago. That's not an adequate amount of time for mm -hmm. kind of the long-term investor to see if... J.P. Morgan is beating the market for you, though. Very, very small margin. Basically flat. I, I think over a longer period of time, that will be a market beater over a five-year competition, not five months. So I still feel good about that. Results come out tomorrow. Not too worried about it. I know we're going to see some legal charges for, on the J.P. Morgan um, income statement there, but still want to see revenue growth in the fee businesses. I think we'll see that credit card business will continue to do well. So I feel good about that pick, even though it hasn't been a market beater by a lot. What, what about you? So my, my top pick over that period has been Capital One Financial. Mm -hmm. uh, it's up six, roughly 16%, beating the market by about five points, a little bit more than five points. So if I, if I look at what's happened between then and now to, to have led to that outperformance, it's not a whole lot. I, I think it's more just that investors were expecting worse out of Capital One. Uh, 
the story I think is still intact, and that story is is that Capital One was this uh, leader, if not best in class, but at least a, one of the leaders in the credit card issuing uh, industry. Mm-hmm. And now they're becoming a more full service bank, or they're focusing more on becoming a full service bank, building that out. The ING Direct uh, buy was a big part of that. That said. When I look at Capital One, and again, just as a reminder of how the stock draft worked, we had to pick uh, a certain number of one, one company from different sectors within right. the financial market. So Capital One was within the, the banking sector for me. If I look at it today, again, we've had some nice outperformance over just the five months, and I, I don't want to get too crazy because right. it's just a small amount of time, but price to tangible book value almost 1.8 now. So that's getting a little high compared to some of the other, some of the other banks. And you've got a, a last 12 months return on equity of just under 11%. So when I have that to compare against some other options out there that we can buy in the banking space, I'm not as crazy about it. Think really. about a trade. I, I'm thinking about a trade. On the trading and, and let me be clear that this isn't necessarily saying I'm a, I'm a sell on Capital mm-hmm. One or you should sell Capital One if you own it. But – with new, if I had new money to invest or if we were doing the stock draft today, I think, and this is one that nobody picked up in our stock draft, I'd take Citigroup hands down wow. over Capital One. Based on kind of the Capital One valuation, just making that hurdle a little bit higher over the next couple of years. It's, it's, it's based on valuation. I, I do like the story. I like the leadership at Capital One. But I feel like the, the opportunity for upside is not tremendous. Mm-hmm. Whereas I look at Citigroup, it's, it's a much bigger bank already. However, tra- still trading below tangible book value. And I like the story there, too. I, I like the return to banking roots. Mm-hmm. I really like the leadership there. I like Michael Corbat at the top there. Um, as I keep saying, it's taken me a while to come around to the Citigroup story. But now that, I've, now that it's sort of clicked with me, it's I there. really like it. All right. Speaking of kind of trades, if I, I don't necessarily want to trade any of my picks. I still, f- still feel pretty good about it. But if we added a roster spot. Maybe you could take one from the other teams. Uh, Brendan talked about it a little bit on, on Friday in the interview. Wisdom Tree has been very impressive in terms of his performance. It's beating the market by 28 percentage points. So maybe it's obviously more expensive today than it was. But the opportunity there for this ETF-focused company, uh, mutual fund industry, over $13 trillion. Mm-hmm. ETFs, less than $2 billion. So growing enormously fast. Uh, not going to get to the mutual fund level in a couple of years. It's going to be a long story, but Wisdom Tree is kind of the pure play in the ETF market. Looks very expensive today, trading at 60, 60 times earnings. It's going to look expensive, but they're growing earnings at an incredible rate, too. So, Do you know what the, uh, the market cap of the, the company is? It's around $2 billion. Okay. So still relatively small there. Um, it's been a great one for Brendan, and I, I kind of wish I had it. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you do. Um, AIG, I'm not going to say too much about that. That one has uh, been beating the market for me by a small margin. Uh, that would still be, that's my number one. That's my number one pick of my group of companies that I have in there. Uh, Discover is another uh, pick I had in there. That one's also beating the market by a bit, just about one and a half percentage points. Uh, the, the valuation, when you compare it to, to competitors, uh, 3.2 times tangible book value for Discover versus five times for American Express, which is sort of the closest, I think, the closest comp mm-hmm. you can have. Visa is trading at 22 times tangible book value, but that's a very different business. Right. So it's tough to stack those two up. Uh, Discover, what I think is particularly interesting is the efforts that they're making in direct-to-consumer banking. Uh, that could 
transform this company. Um, and and I think to the extent that they that they do that and continue to grow the presence of the Discover the Discover brand through cards, mm-hmm. uh, this could be a, a pretty impressive company. Uh, down the road. And, and one company that they're working with is eBay and their PayPal unit. Another one that I'll say, I kind of wish I had. It's been a laggard. <laughs> it's been a laggard for Billy. That's what's dragging him down and keeping him out of contending for first place there. Lagging by 13 percentage points, but eBay's PayPal working with Discover to try to get into stores, stores like Home Depot, so they can come in and say, hey, look, we have all these people using PayPal. Let them use it in your store. That will really expand the, the PayPal footprint and kind of just people knowing about it and knowing how to use it. So I think that could be a really good thing for eBay. And uh, and one one more of my picks. This is one that's actually lagging the market. Aflac. It's up about nine percent since we did the draft, but trailing the market by about two percentage points. Look at yeah. you. Can't even I get know. a market beater. Embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> so so there's some about three three quarters of Aflac's operating earnings come from Japan. That's that's the bigger business, and the demographics in Japan continue to be favorable to Aflac. You've got an aging population there, and the budget situation in Japan suggests that the the excess costs that the Aflac policies are covering, the government isn't anytime soon going to be able to come up with the money to to bridge that gap and make Aflac's pro- products unnecessary. Here in the U.S., there have been some some headwinds, though. I think, for one, obviously, unemployment is a big headwind for Aflac because most people who have Aflac coverage get that through their employer. When you're not employed, you're not getting that. Uh, the other the other thing, uh, the Affordable Care Act, aka Obamacare. I think there's just some uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's uncertainty all over the place when it comes to Obamacare. There's been a lot of question marks with that, and I think. For one, that may be uh, consumers may be confused and, and, and confused how Aflac plays in right. with this new uh, with this new environment of, of healthcare. Well, when your spokesman's a duck, it can get a little confusing. Never it confuses people. Never. But with a trailing twelve months, twenty percent return on equity. Uh, Aflac has long had a really impressive return on equity and a two two x uh, tangible book value multiple. Potentially, some really good value there. If the company can can get over the, the near term hurdles, not to mention the dividend, which has been raised. For, that is true. I don't know how many years. Forever. Now. Yep. Forever. Forever. Ever. Forever. Keeps. I think it was keeps B, going up. It was a BC number when they started. It All was. Right. All right. What What would be your number one? What would be your number one buy today among your picks? Ooh. Any of them? Would you buy any of them? <laughs> I'll stick. I'll stick with JP Morgan. And if you could dump one of them, what would it be? None of them. You, you're not dumping any of them. Nope. If you had to dump one of them. I had to dump one of them. Uh, I don't know. Get back. Love them all. Get back to me. Let's go on to the mailbag. We have a email address. It's WTMI at fool.com. It is. Shoot us an email. We love getting emails from people. Questions, comments, complaints, whatever. We just like to hear from people. The email for today comes from Ben from Bowling Green and Jack from Florida. This is kind of a combo question. Two different listeners. Emailed in with this. I would like to know what methods you recommend for researching management teams. Unconventional ideas are always welcome. David, I'm a fan of numbered lists. I love numbered lists of things. I have a list of four things here for evaluating management. I'm going to give you number one, and then I'll let you talk so that I don't just start blathering on like I want to do. Cool. Number one, experience at the company or at least in the industry. I like to see uh, a management team that if they haven't been with the com- that specific company for a long time. At the very least, that they've been doing that 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 type of business for a long time. Mm-hmm. Great example here: 
Mike Corbat, we were just talking about Citigroup, Mike Corbat over at Citigroup, he graduated undergrad from Harvard in 1983. Guess where Mike Corbat's been since that graduation in 1983? Citigroup. Citigroup. So where do you think Mike Corbat's going two or three years from now? Citigroup. Nowhere. He's going nowhere. <laughs> he's staying at Citigroup. Uh, and so, so number one, he's dedicated to that company. Number two, he knows that particular company. Number three, he knows the business of banking. I thought you had four. Oh, that's just all one. You had three in the one. Three in the one. Wow, you are. This is, this is nested lists going on here. All right. I'll go, I go above and beyond for the, for I'll the give WTMI you my three. listeners. I'll give you my three quickly. Uh, first one, just the proxy statement, and you can find that on the SEC website. It'll be under DEF14A. I don't know why they can't just say proxy statement. I mean, it says it in there, but they always got to have all these. So go to the proxy statement, see how people are compensated, see the experience. It'll it'll have information there. Number two, conference calls. Just can I understand what they're talking about? If it's hard for me to even understand what they're saying on a conference call, it's going to be hard for me to really understand the business in kind of a five-year time horizon. Mm -hmm. And the third one, unconventional, he asked for it, YouTube. I like typing in. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Uh, I like... Googling someone's name or YouTubing someone's name, seeing if there's an interview with them for 20, 30 minutes. Just what do they seem like? Just give me, give me the, the personality test. So unconventional, put it in YouTube. You want to make snap judgments. Yeah. Snap, snap judgments. Basically. Yeah, it's a person. I, I like that. That is unconventional. I did, I did not get unconventional, so kudos to you for going outside the box. My number two was ownership stake. Uh, I was just talking about uh, dedication to the company when – they own a big stake in the company. That helps along with that. I've, I've vacillated a little bit on, on Bank of Internet, Bofi. Um, but one thing that's notable is that two directors, one of them the former chairman of Bofi, own about 7% together of the outstanding stock. So you know that you're aligned with them. That's helpful as a shareholder. Yep. Uh, number three, this overlaps with something that you just said, how, how the management team talks about the business, whether you can understand it, which suggests that they understand their own strategy well enough to be able to communicate it clearly. Uh, John Stump recently at the Goldman Sachs conference, the first thing he said after reading off the, the required disclosure, he said, at Wells Fargo, everything we do starts with our vision to satisfy all of our customers' financial needs and help them succeed financially. This is the same vision I shared five years ago, and it is just as relevant today as when it was written more than 20 years ago. That's a CEO that understands what his business is about. Number four, compensation structure. You just mentioned that DEF 14A. Mm -hmm. Very important. Not just to know how much. A lot of people focus on how much is the CEO or CFO getting paid, but how is that pay determined? Mm -hmm. That pay is determined by something silly like how many pair of shoes are in the CEO's closet or something even sillier like earnings per share. That could be a Sillier than shoes. Sillier than shoes. I think you win with the YouTube thing, though. That's a I good do. one. Outside I always the box. All right, going to the game. You, you always win. Yes. That's true. Going to the game for today. Speaking of winning, we got a little grade it today. And the, uh, the, first, the first of the, uh, the grade it's is grade Friday's jobs report. So what we do here, we've got this scenario. We each draw a beautiful, wonderful artistic rendering of what we think of, uh, All right. of that. I'll go first. Yeah, please do. Friday's jobs report. Giving it a snowman. It was cold out there. People don't want to go look for a job <laughs> in the cold. It's, it's, it's too the, cold. It's the winter. There's snowmen everywhere. You just want to make one. So I'm not, not too worried about it. What do you say? That, you look like you're worried. That's not me being worried. That is a, that's a spiky 
That's a spiky sawtooth chart there. Mm -hmm. That's because the jobs numbers are not a pretty smooth kind of thing that you just look at every month. Oh, okay, so 100,000 this month and 100,000 next month and 120,000 the month after that. Uh, the jobs number swings drastically. As I shared on Friday, the average change from month to month going back to 2003, so going back a decade, has been 100,000 jobs. So the swing in the number of jobs added swings about 100,000 jobs from one report to the next. So that's not something that I'm particularly worried about. Right. Number two scenario. We've got banks' likelihood of beating earnings expectations. All right. Let's again. So banks are a little bit different than maybe your retail companies. Expectations usually aren't blown out of the water. So I'm giving this a, a coin flip. That's a thumb flipping a coin. Yes, that's a very good picture. I know you take notice. Um, <laughs> I'm not too, and we just mentioned earnings per share, not a huge deal at some of the banks. That can be weighed down by legal costs, provisions sometimes. I'm more interested in the banks for this quarter. What is that top line revenue number doing? Specifically, the non interest income revenue. So, fees, investment banking, card fees. I'm more interested in that. Banks that can grow that would be more impressive than somebody who posts impressive earnings per shares. What is that? <laughs> Wouldn't you like to know? That right there, that is a frowny face with a magical unicorn jumping over it. So if I were to guess, if I were to make a guess, I'm going to say that going into earnings season, there has been a lot of, uh, the expectations aren't very high. Uh, I, I think you've heard a lot of uh, relatively dour uh, things about the banks and about the, the environment that they faced. So I think they have opportunity from that perspective to be the magical unicorn and jump over those <laughs> low expectations. At the same time, I'm 1,000% on board with you that really at the end of the day, it's a coin flip. It is. All right, final scenario. Final scenario, making the grade, grade this guy's hair. <laughs> All right, for those of you listening, this guy has a uh, basketball fans will know Nerland's Noel. It looks like a huge flat top, and then he has a Billy Ray Cyrus mullet coming down. So I'm giving that hair. That is an A+. Plus. That's an A+, plus all of the way. What else can you go with? It's amazing. What is that? What else can you go with? You can start over. You can, you can go all the way from A back to Z because that is so tremendous. I mean, the flow plus the height. Yes. He's got the height of the top, the flow in the back. I it's mean, unbeatable. It is unbeatable. So you can't even go A. You have to go up above A, all the way back down to Z, and double plus it. Double it. That's Good deal. Way. That's how you win. All right. All right. Finishing off today in the Twitter sphere, David, what is our first tweet? Our first and last tweet is from the Huffington Post. Experience one-of-a-kind underwater views at these lodgings. No scuba tank required. And we have a picture of this. My question for you is, all right, this is a bed and it's surrounded by Whoa. a fish tank or an aquarium. You, you look like, okay, here my question That's is. amazing. Are you, is that amazing or would you be terrified to sleep in that? No, that is amazing. Would I'd you, be terrified. You'd be terrified? I saw Mission Impossible when the fish tank breaks and all that water comes through. Where is that? I don't know. We'll have to look. Yeah, I need to find out where that is. I need to stay in that room. Since we only had one tweet today, let me share a couple of other things. We've, we got a couple of emails. Again, the email address, WTMI at fool.com. Uh, a couple comments on the show. This one's from Ryan Bernier. I think that's how you say it. The reference, I, I made a reference to, a Billy, uh, to what I thought was a Billy Madison quote. 
at the at the time in my head. Uh, the price is wrong. I should have caught that. That was, of course, from Happy Gilmore, as Ryan points out. So thanks, Ryan, for for keeping us uh, keeping us honest on that one. And then uh, we got another comment here. Wait, where's the rest? Where's my other paper? Here we go. Another comment here. This is from uh, Brendan in rainy Vermont saying, what struck me about the China donkey fox story was, where did all the fox meat come from? Do they farm foxes? The fox seems pretty elusive to be a backyard hunter supplement. In Peru, guinea pig is on the menu, but they farm them and breed guinea pigs. Interesting. Enough fox meat to tip the scales in Chinese Walmart? Incredible. I think that is incredible. Where, and that's, that's an aspect of the story that I just didn't think about. I did not. And the title of his email was something like, where does the fox go? What does the fox what say? What does the fox say? Or where, <laughs> the fox doesn't say anything by the yeah, time that it's is, mixed in with donkey meat. That's a good question. <laughs> Heather, can you, can you flash the picture of our aquarium, uh, aquarium room one, one more time? Well, here's the question for our Twitter followers and our, our Facebook page uh, followers. Would you want to stay in that hotel room? Mm-hmm. David says no. I say yes. Go on to Twitter at TMF Financials. Go on to Facebook, uh, Motley Fool Financial Services, and let us know. Cool. And that's the show for today. I'm Matt Copenheffer. This is David Hansen. We'll see you tomorrow. People on the show may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. Don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear.